The book of Revelation tells us that one day all his people will be gathered around his throne singing a song, something like that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And he will be worthy of every syllable we utter, every affection we feel. And it will be a privilege to gather around his foot, his feet, and to shout together, you're worthy. And so together, let's look at his word. Let's open the Bible as we continue in our series on the Psalms, praying the Psalms. And today I'm in Psalm 66. Psalm 66, it's the Psalm after what Pastor Travis preached last week, Psalm 65. And as we look at it here together, I uh, want to read uh, the first four verses and then the last verse, but we're going to look at the entire psalm uh, together. So as you're turning there, um, I'm just thankful to God to be a part of this church and to be able to hone in and focus on being a part of reaching the nations as a family that we get to be a part of that mission uh, together. So let me read the word and pray, and then we'll go at it together. Word of God says this, Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. And they sing praises to your name. Now verse 20. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer. Or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all of our affection and all of our allegiance. You're worthy of all of our time and resources. It is all a gift from your hand. What do we have that we have not received? And so, Father, I pray that you would obliterate pride and arrogance and the this-is-mine mentality. And, Father, you would release our hands on our lives and on our time and on our money and on our families and on our jobs. And may we say, this is yours. For the glory of your name, take all that I am and use it however you wish. Father, I ask, I ask that that would be our prayer in this moment, day by day. It would be what we stir one another to pray moment by moment in our groups, in our corporate gathering, while we're on mission. Father, all that we are is yours. And I just pray that you would get glory for your name. Through us. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. It has been a privilege to be a part of 40 days of prayer. I've 
the prayer team approached me about doing that 40 days of prayer just as a prayer team. And so my wife and I, when we pray together, it's usually more spontaneous. It's usually like, okay, something is shared. Okay, let's stop and let's pray. But we were not praying nightly or daily together. And so this 40 days of prayer to be able to say we are going to try to link arms together and make it an earnest effort that every single night we're going to try to pray together. For some of you singles, making it an earnest effort to say I'm going to pick someone that I can pray with and we're going to pray together every single day. And now having done that with the prayer team and now having done that with um, the church as a whole over 80 days or so kind of on this trajectory, missing a few here or there, it has been such a good thing for my soul to remind my marriage, remind my life that like we're founded on prayer. We're desperate people. I tell you, some of the effects that sometimes happen though is like after a long day, sometimes things just feel kind of heavy or you're exhausted. So one, you might not want to pray. You know, that happens. Other times what happens is you're just really weighted down, so your prayers, they can sound kind of heavy, like they're only about the bad things. And so sometimes, just you know, laying out transparently, like there are times when after I finish praying, we're praying together, I've gone through this list of things that were kind of hard that we want God to move in, and I'm more aware of the difficult things than I am of the God who promises to carry all of the difficult things. It's like I just listed them, and now all of a sudden, I see the mountain rather than seeing the grace of God upholding me. And I think that's why prayers of petition, that is, prayers of asking, are not the only kinds of prayers in the Bible. There are other kinds of prayers. There are prayers of adoration and praise. God, you are worthy, and I just want to say to you, you're worthy. And there are prayers of thanksgiving. You have done this. And I'm just going to rehearse what you have done over and over for the sake of my soul and for the glory of your name. I am thankful. And that's where we are today. Psalm 66 is a psalm of adoration. It's a prayer of praise. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's meant to kind of balance out those prayers of confession, which are necessary and helpful and right, and those prayers of petition. But in this psalm today, we gather to rehearse the goodness of God, to talk about His character, and to remember that's part of our prayer lives. It's part of what it means to commune with God is to Say to Him how great He is and to thank Him for all that He has done. And so, what are we thanking Him for in this psalm? There's three major sections. Right now, what you begin to see at the beginning is the entire world praising and glorifying God. And we thank Him. We thank Him that one day, all of that will be true. Every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord among every single people group all over the planet. And whether they have bowed the knee to Jesus in submission or whether they will bow the knee to Jesus in judgment, every knee will bow. It will happen. All will worship in that sense of just, you are who I didn't say you were. Or, 
You are my king. What are we praising and thanking him for? We're thanking him for his care for the entire world. We're also thanking him for his care for his people. How he has cared for his people. And then we end the psalm with seeing his care for each and every individual one of us. It's interesting. And as we see this kind of broad funnel go down, cares for the world, he cares for his people, he cares for you, then that care is meant to sling us back to be his agents of care to the world that's not praising him. He cares for the world. He cares for us as a people. He cares for you as an individual. Now go talk about the glories of Christ to the world. That's this song. That's this song. The Bible says that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we have been created for. That's what the end will look like. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so God is to be heralded. He is to be praised. That is our purpose. That's what we were created for. And this whole idea of missions, I remember, never forget, reading book by Pastor John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad, and the first line is, missions exist because worship does not. And one day missions will not be needed because we will all be worshiping. But right now, we are worshipers not just for ourselves. We're worshipers for the glory of God. And then as we see His greatness, we are burdened that the world does not know Him and love Him. You know, it's just right for us to praise God. To praise and to glorify anything else would be idolatry as an end praise. When Moses is so desperate on the mountain, he says, God, show me your glory. He's like, if you don't go before me, I don't want to go. Like, if you're not a part of this, I don't want to be there. Because he knows his existence and his mission is so hinging upon the glory of God, upon seeing God. And so he's like, show me your glory. And here's what God says. I'll show you my glory. I will pass by. And here are his words. Exodus 34, 5 to 8. What does God give him when he shows him his glory? He gives him his character. He gives him his name. He gives him himself. That's our greatest need. Here's what he says. And God said to Moses, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Follow that. The Lord proclaimed his own name. If I do that, it's idolatry. If God does that, it's right. God is proclaiming what is most valuable, what will satisfy. Here's what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, obviously apart from repentance. And he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what was Moses' response? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is this psalm. This psalm is a psalm of worship. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of the nations 
that will bow down in worship and praise and the psalm of his people that should bow down in worship and praise. The picture is like a choir. And what you have is this massive, multi-ethnic, every nation, tribe, and tongue, and family represented, and they're all singing. They're all singing the same song, praising God together. This is the picture. And here's what we read. That they're singing, being encouraged to sing in Psalm 66. Look at it with me. Verse 1. Shout for joy to God all the earth. It's a song of joy. Sing the glory of His name. What God sung and declared to Moses, we're to sing back to God or pray back to God or talk about with one another. Sing the glory of His name. Give Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Jaw-dropping, all-striking is what you have done in my life to your church for years. So great is your power that your enemies, they come cringing. The word cringing is like they're cut down to size. The arrogance is gone. They actually realize their smallness. And that smallness is in view. And God's greatness is what they are more aware of. And then verse 4. There's a wrestle on whether this is a present reality or a future reality. More than likely, it's actually a future reality promise that we're reading right here all the earth will worship you sing praises to your name the Hebrew can be rendered either way they sing praises to your name the point is the picture is of the entire choir probably the end times choir that will worship the father in spirit and in truth what we see is the world's praise Of the glory of God. This is our first point. We're going to see those three things. But this first point is the world's praise of the glory of God. Hear me. All peoples in this room. And all peoples on the globe. Will. Worship. The king. African. Latin American. Mexican. Asian. African American. English. German. Scottish. Irish, Eastern European, Russian, Indian, Egyptian, Nepalese, Iranian, Jew, Greek, and thousands upon thousands of more ethnic groups, they will all worship Christ as King. They will. They will submit their hearts to Him. There will be a a people, a representative of every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne. The world was created to praise the glory of God. And that's why when we read in the book of Revelation, we read of this gathering of adoration and praise. And what's beautiful is He's big enough to handle it. There will never be a moment that there will be like, oh wait, that's too many people praising Him. He's not worth that. There's no amount of hyperbole about the greatness of God. You cannot over-exaggerate. Everything we say falls short of the greatness of God. And every nation will realize it. Every tongue will confess. And one day, those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, they will realize it and they will be ushered into His presence to be with Him forever. 
These are the songs that will be sung, Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, this is said of Jesus, by your blood you ransomed people of God from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and people. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. When I was in college, I sang in a choir. It was like this traveling choir, but every year we would sing Handel's Messiah. And it was beautiful to hear kind of all these voices coming together. But what would happen is there were a few moments in Handel's Messiah when there would be a soloist, one who would come forward and then they would sing by themselves. And this psalm, it has that kind of effect in the prayer. What happens is, is you have this massive choir singing, and then you might have this smaller group singing, and then you basically have this solo worshiper, this individual. By the time this psalm is over, you have one person stepping out and desperately worshiping the living God. But what we need to remember is as a people and as an individual, We were created for the praise of the glory of God because one day the whole world will worship Him. Why will the world worship and praise God? The answer is what we'll see in the second point. That God has done awesome deeds among His people. So if you're following, the scope is like a funnel. God is at work. Work for the glory of His name so that all peoples will praise Him. Why will all peoples praise Him? Because God has been faithful to His people. That's where we are now. God has done awesome deeds among His people. Look at verse 5 and following. The text says this, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. That's all humanity. He is awesome among all humanity. But look at where He goes now. He follows the storyline of the people of Israel. It's the people of Israel who are singing this song. And now we are taken into this journey of the Exodus. And when he delivered his people and they crossed the Jordan. Both of it, waters parted, dried up, people passing through. One to get out of Egypt, one to get to the promised land. But this is what the people, God's people, the people of Israel are Praying to God. They're thanking Him, saying, come and see what God has done. Verse 5. He's awesome in His deeds towards all humanity, but He turned the sea into dry land. And they passed through the river on foot. And there, when He did those things, we did rejoice in Him. Why did we rejoice? Because He rules by His might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. And then it says, Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Now meditate on these things. Think on these things. Selah, it says. God's awesome deeds among His people include this gift of deliverance. In your own life, there have been times when God has shown up and He has delivered you. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no greater time than when your heart 
Your hard heart was changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. He has met you. He has delivered you. And He promises that one day He will fully deliver you. There have been micro-deliverances. You've seen Him show up. You've seen Him answer prayer. What the people of Israel here are praising God for is His deliverance. Praising Him for keeping His Word. Praising Him for His grace in the past. Because it's that sense of what God did there tells me what He has promised to do, He will continue to do. It's past grace gives me confidence in future grace. The grace that He has poured out in the past of His people is meant to, as we read the Scriptures, be like, yes, He was faithful then, He's never broken His word, so when He says He will be with me always, I can bank on it. His promise for the future, His grace for the future is something that we can be confident about. And just as the people of Israel, verse 6, rejoiced in God's deliverance, so too should we rejoice. But this deliverance is not only meant to create joy, it's meant to create humility. Because if anybody is humble enough to acknowledge, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Christ is my only Savior, the only way you acknowledge that is humility. Deliverance not only brings joy, but it has brought repentance. It's brought a sense of brokenness, a sense of I cannot save myself. That's why the joy is so big. Someone has done for me what I cannot do for myself. That's why he says at the end of verse 7, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. When you see deliverance, it's meant to say you couldn't do that. Sean, you could not split the sea. The people of Israel, no matter how many there were, I mean, like with a million people, could you like form a wall or something? And, you know, maybe the wall, the waters couldn't break and then you kind of peel off. No, you couldn't do it. You couldn't deliver yourself, no matter how great in number you might have been. The point of deliverance, the point of God's awesome deeds is to evoke rejoicing and joy because you couldn't save yourself. So therefore, it's meant to create humility. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, but let them repent. Bow their hearts to Jesus. Verse 8 then says this. Bless our God, O peoples. Now that's interesting. Now, follow me. It's the people of Israel talking about their past deliverance. And now they're saying, because we have been blessed... It says, all peoples, now you bless that God. Israel was meant to not only experience deliverance, but to be a means towards the deliverance of the nations. This is the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless you that all the nations of the earth might be blessed. This verse right here is the echo of Genesis 12. It's a direct pointer to the promises that God made. Israel, you'll be blessed all right, but it's too light a thing for you to be blessed for you. You're going to be blessed for the sake of all the peoples, which includes all of us in this room that are non-Jews, by the way. 
Sometimes it's so easy, I think, as Americans, we're so us-centric that we forget we're the nations, right? We're not the inroad people here. People of Israel were, right? Like, that's not us. We're the nations. Bless our God, O peoples. God blessed Israel, recorded in Holy Scripture, that we might see and love and adore that same God. Israel's deliverance was never just meant for them. And I tell you, this wasn't originally in my manuscript, but I tell you, when I was sitting right here and I heard Rawan read the scripture in Arabic, I had tears. Because there are millions and millions of people who have never heard that word read in their language. Never. They've never heard of the beauties of Jesus. Never. Two and a half billion people who don't have a neighbor to share Jesus with them. Many of which don't have the scriptures in their language. If we're included in Israel's blessing, If we've been given a blessing, we too are meant to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Friends, what it I don't know if it lands on you, but it is a massive privilege to be a part of this church. I grew up in a church for 20 plus years. We had, to my poor weak mind, we had one missionary that was sent out in those years. And then I was sent out to help plant a church and as a pastor. But whether it's one or two, the point is, in those many years, that was the only personal contact they had with someone called out by God to go and to put their feet down among these people that have never heard the gospel. And we have many. We take it for granted, these missions videos, that we have been able to live life with some of these individuals and we're able to send them out and they're going, called by God to go among unreached and unengaged peoples to take the gospel there. We get the privilege to pray and to give. We get the privilege to rally our community groups around and some of you who might want to do this, I encourage you to do it. Get your community groups rallied around a missionary team, a global partnering team so that you can support them and pray for them. We have so much going for us here about reaching the nations. It's such a privilege. A privilege that sometimes we take for granted. Friends, we are all created to adore the glory of God and to be glory spreaders to the ends of the earth. Now that means that we're meant to reach our neighbors with the gospel. We are missionaries, every one of us, to take the gospel to our neighbors. But we are also Every one of us meant to dream and pray and give and consider what does it mean for us to be a part of God spreading His glory to people who have never heard.
I'm not laying down a law that it means this for every person. But what this does mean is that we are all meant to be a part of that story. And we're all meant to spend and think about our lives in such a way that we consider not only how the gospel goes to our neighbor, but how does the gospel go to those who have never heard. We have some international workers that have been going through a lot. Obviously, for security reasons, we can't mention many of the details, and it might feel kind of cryptic, but here's what I can say. They had a teammate who, in his 40s, I think it was, passed away. On top of that, the place that they lived translated the Scriptures. There were times that they were seeing conversions almost daily. Many coming to faith in Jesus a week. Churches being planted. And then, in a matter of days, they're told they have to leave what had been home for almost 15 years. Kicked out of the country. Now trying to figure out what in the world God has for them. What in the world their life is supposed to look like. What do you do in those moments? This psalm is meant to say you rehearse the faithfulness of God in the past. You pray prayers of thanksgiving for what God has done. You also pray prayers of pain and petition asking God to bring healing But here's something that they have as a part of their decision-making process that I'm afraid some of us don't have. What they have as a part of their decision-making process is, I am a missionary, and that must be a part of how I make decisions for my life. I am on mission with my life, and that matters for where I live and what I do. That is not any different for them than it is for us. Context might be different, but we're all missionaries. Every one of us. Our neighbors need Christ. Our family needs Christ. Some in our family needs Christ. Our roommates need Christ. Our fellow students need Christ. Those that we hang out with need Christ. But I must say, According to the scriptures, it's not enough to only be a missionary to our neighbor. Because as I said, there are over two and a half billion people that have no neighbor to evangelize them. It has to mean for some of you, for some of us, to consider what the Lord might have for us. To say whatever you want from us is what we want to do. It could be a short-term trip. It could be using your vacation days to go and be a part of a team that encourages our international workers. It could be that God is uprooting your life and wanting you to go with a team to evangelize the unreached peoples of the world. For many of our singles, I want you to hear loud and clear, you are not only valuable if you get married. You are valuable because you are a child of God. You are valuable because God has made you for His glory. And I see so many singles spending so much time solely focused on the goal of marriage, which I think marriage is a great goal. But you have some unique opportunities in your time to use your life. How about taking a summer and just going overseas? Joining a missionary team. 
evangelizing. You've got so much of your time and energy that you can use to leverage your life for the glory of God's name. Think about it with your career choices. Think about it with all that you do. And not just singles, but married. We are missionaries. Where we are, but we are also meant to be a part of God's global work. And I don't know what that looks like for you. (laughs) But the beauty is we get to be a part of this church that gets to dream about it together. We get to dream about it together. And so, Israel was blessed to be a blessing to all the peoples. We've been brought into those promises by faith alone. And if we've been blessed with salvation, we are meant to be a blessing to the peoples. A doorway of hope for the nations. And this is why, and I'll show this one here because mine's an old copy. This is why I think reading missionary biographies is a great help in our walk with Jesus. Because how do you get your brain thinking about God's work among the nations and learning that he is at work among all peoples? Answer, you dive into somebody else's life who's been on the front lines. So if you're looking for a good read for the next month or whatever, we wanted to give this to you. Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Your life is not meant to look just like his life or his wife's life or his children's lives. But it's meant to just remind you, God is at work among the nations. How might I join his work there? Friends, God's awesome deeds that he is doing among his people. It's not only a gift of deliverance, but sometimes God gives another type of gift that is still his awesome deeds. It's the gift of affliction. And that's where he goes now. (laughs) Sean, I thought you said this was a psalm of thanksgiving. I thought you said this was happy. Well, stay with it. Here's where he goes. Verse 9. Oh, let me read verse 8 to get the on-ramp. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us And you've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Who's doing this? God is doing this. God is giving a gift of affliction to His people. You're like, that doesn't sound very gift-like. I hope nobody chooses that gift method for Christmas. Going to wrap up affliction. But this is what He's doing. Why? Why is it included? Keep reading. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden, verse 11, on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, echoes of Isaiah 43. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. That's why. This is why he includes the gift of affliction in a psalm of thanksgiving. Because God is with us in the midst of affliction. Why? Why in the world would we call it a gift? Why would we call it a gift? Because trials humble us. And they deepen our relationships with Christ. And we finally begin to understand our real sense of desperation. Desperation. 
I'll say it again. Trials, they are a gift because they remind us about what we really forget, which is we are desperate and we are constantly in need of God. And in trials, all of you who have experienced them, and I would say you all have in various degrees, in trials, it is meant to show you the depth of God's love, His consistent presence, and His fact that He will never leave you nor forsake you. And that springs up joy even in the midst of the affliction. You don't know how much you love light until you have walked in darkness. till the pain hits you. This is how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, and hear these words, so utterly burdened beyond our strength. So, burden, feel heaviness. Beyond our strength, we are weak, that we despaired of life. Deep depression, deep sense of sadness. And, and, chap, and verse 9 tells us why. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Isn't that how affliction feels? Isn't that how pain feels? Feels like death. Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. To make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Sometimes God gives us trials so that we would stop trusting in ourselves. But we would start trusting in the God who raises the dead. Friends, our self-trust is, is pretty thick. It's a thick wall. And so sometimes the only thing that breaks down the wall to receive all the blessings that God has for us are the waves of affliction. To break down our pride and our self-sufficiency. Then we begin to stop propping ourselves up on our plans and our strength and our waves. We say, why don't the waves keep coming? Why do we feel like we're drowning? It's so that eventually, exhaustedly, humbly, desperately, we grab onto the only hope we have, which is Christ. Afflictions come that we would grab onto Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon says this, It is in the house of mourning that you meet the man of sorrows. For Jesus to have suffered in our place, to be called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, where else do you meet a grief-stricken Savior, one who walked in suffering, Except when you walk in suffering yourself. One of the rays of hope in the midst of our affliction is that it's there where you know Christ deeper. You get to be with Him in ways that you never dreamed. If there is an end to yourself, there you will find our Savior. There was a unique story in this book by Hudson Taylor where he was at the end of himself. He didn't know which way to go. He didn't know what God had for him. And he was burdened to reach these Chinese individuals in the interior of China with the gospel. And he had to come to the end of himself. 
The scene was where he was on a beach, and I'm going to not share all of the story so that if you're reading it, you might have a sense of anticipation and actually read it yourself. But the point is, is it was not until he became so desperate that he began to get clarity on what was really important and exactly what he needed to do to take what God had done for him, take the blessing that God had done in his life, to make him a blessing to the people of China. It was desperation, friends. Here's what I want you to hear about affliction. Charles Spurgeon says this, such an amazing quote. Believe, church, that the deepest afflictions are always neighbors to the highest joys. The greatest possible privileges lie close to the darkest trials. And the more bitter your sorrow, the louder your song at the end will be. Dear friends, this is why they're singing about their affliction. Because they experienced it, and it was deep pain, and yet God met them. God was close to them. And in this situation, the affliction is left really general so that you and I as the reader can land in it and say, that's for me. And for them, they had experienced a recent deliverance, a sense of abundance that had come out, and that led to praise. But I just want to encourage you that while you're walking in that road of affliction, know that that affliction is neighbor to some of the highest joys because you know Christ deeper. You know Christ deeper. Spurgeon finally says this. It says, He has brought you to a sandy desert. I love this image. And I added, not for nothing. He didn't take you out to a desert for nothing. But so that we would now begin to seek the treasures that are only found in the sand. Have you ever found your affliction like that? Like, the only way I can know the treasure is there is to be brought to the treasure. And that treasure is Christ in the midst of affliction. And so what we see is the world, the nations will worship and bow down. Why will they worship and bow down? Because God has been faithful to His people Israel. And He gave them a gift of deliverance and He gave them the gift of affliction that has led to their praise and led to their humility. But now all of a sudden the choir is singing, the choir is singing, and one person steps out desperate as a solo worshiper. And all you hear at the end is meant to help you think about your own heart and think, I'm a worshiper. I need Jesus. Our church needs Jesus. The nations need Jesus. But it starts with me. It starts with my relationship with Almighty God. And that's where the psalm ends. The psalm ends in verse 13. Look at how it shifts from us to I. And what we begin to see is God's intimate care for each individual child. The psalmist says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. And now what you're going to see is basically he's got these gifts and he's standing at the altar and he is acknowledging his sin. And he is acknowledging how God has delivered him. This performance of vows is a sense of thanksgiving and rejoicing that God has done what He said. He is, 
He's delivered this individual worshiper in some way, and now you offer this sacrifice, this performance of vows to praise God for the deliverance he's done. So that's what we're looking at here. The burnt offerings and the other sacrifices, they are also this sense of wholehearted surrender, this confession of sin, this I don't want anything between God and I. And this is what we're reading. This is part of the song that's being sung. Song of Thanksgiving. So look at it with me. Verse 14. I will perform my vows to you that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with smoke and of sacrifice and of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. And verse 16, come and hear. Come and hear with me, he's saying, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You see that? Where does reaching the nations begin? Where does the church being encouraged begin? It's when we as individuals crumble before Almighty God and say, I am a sinner, I need you. And I'm not just talking about at conversion. Yes, if you're not a follower of Jesus, repent of your sins and confess that Jesus is your only hope. But I'm talking about the day in, day out, reconfession of that very truth that led you to Christ. I am a sinner. I need Christ. I am desperate for him. And then what does he say? Come and hear all you who fear. And I'm going to tell you what God has done. We have to do the hard work of reflecting. Reflecting on all that God has done for us. And as we are humble and contrite, listen to Isaiah 57. This is the promise for you and me. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy... I dwell in high and holy place, but I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. You want to be in the presence of God? Humble yourself before God. You and him. You and him. He promises to dwell there with you and revive your soul. Paul Tripp, I end with this quote. He says this. Speaking about how necessary it is for each one of us to individually stand in awe of God. To fight to not only have prayers of petition, but prayers of adoration and prayers of thanksgiving. He says this. It's dangerous to live without your heart being captured by the awe of God. Because awe of God is quickly replaced by all of you. We become more enamored with ourselves. So he says this, the battle is not a fight between people. And oh, how I wish that could be a bumper sticker. The battle is not a fight between people. It's fought within people. It is a much greater danger to each of us than war between nations will ever be. It is a battle of awe. We were created to live in a real, heart-gripping, agenda-setting, behavior-forming awe of God. But other awes kidnap our hearts. The awe of creation the awe of other people, the awe of ourselves, shove the awe of God out of our hearts. And so, what do we need, church? We need grace. 
We need the help of God, which is why we gather. We need grace to see again, to tremble again, and to bow again at the feet of the one who deserves our awe. And that's why this psalm ends. Verse 19, truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Now blessed be God. He's not rejected me. Nor has he removed his steadfast love from me. Church, I pray. The upshot of this time today. I know. The, the privilege of this church is that there's a lot of gifted preachers. So I get to listen to gifted preaching when I sit out here and I get to listen. I know what it's like to hear a good word and to leave and to be so overwhelmed by the rest of life. It's hard to even remember one thing. I get it. I get it. And I'm laying before you that not only do we have the invitation to pray prayers of thanksgiving to God, but we must consider When we talk about being on mission for Jesus, it begins with us being on our faces before God day by day, surrendering our lives to Him, and then asking ourselves, this is the ask, how can I use my life to not only reach my neighbor, but to be a part of His work to reach all peoples, so that verse 4 is going to happen, and I pray it happens through us. All the nations will worship and bow down at his feet. Let's pray. Father, please. Please, I pray. I pray that we would believe the promise that you will get glory among the nations. I pray that we will rehearse the awesome deeds that you have done among Israel and also for your church and in our life. Father, I pray that we would see Your awesome deeds include deliverance, but they also include affliction. And we can thank you for both. And that, I pray, leads to adoration and praise. Father, please, as we sing and as we reflect, I pray that we would make it a part of our lives, our giving, our going, our reading, our praying, our time in community group. What does it mean for us to be a part of let the nations be glad and sing for joy? Father, I ask that you would make us worshipers. That then we might live our lives so that the nations might worship you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your steadfast love. Knit our hearts together as we sing in Christ's name. Amen.